Well, this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the pages of the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Always reforming the marks of a faithful church. That's the name of the sermon series that we're involved in now. Uh, For the first five weeks, we learned uh, five very important lessons. We refer to these as the five solas of the Reformation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word alone, to the glory of God alone. I hope you've memorized that by this point and can, can rattle it off. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the word alone, to the glory of God alone. These five solas are very important to the life of the church. Indeed, these are the marks of a faithful and God-centered church. You need to understand that to compromise on any of the solas would be tantamount to compromising the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with the five solas in place, last week we began the second part of our series together. We began the second part by turning our attention to some very practical considerations. I want to argue that we need a new reformation in the church. Now, most of you know by this point that the reformation happened almost 500 years ago. I'm arguing that we need another reformation. We need a new reformation in the church. And you ask, what exactly are you referring to? Well, Last week, we argued that there is a need for a reformation in ministry. A reformation in ministry. If you were not here last week, you will notice in the foyer that there are several tables uh, out in the foyer. And at those tables are uh, flyers indicating or representing the different ministries or ministry action teams here at Christ Fellowship. I want to encourage you as you leave this morning to take a few minutes and linger over those, those tables and familiarize yourself with the various ministries at Christ Fellowship. Even more than that, I want to encourage you uh, to take the time to jot down your name and your phone number if you would like to receive more information about the worship team, about the finance ministry action team, about youth ministry. One that I, I begged you to sign up for last week and not one person signed up was we need help in the tech ministry. We need some people who would be willing to learn how to run the soundboard. We need people who would be willing to, to help out with PowerPoint and run the computer. And so if you're inclined in those areas, please uh, at least leave your name and so we can contact you and discuss that a bit more. Now today, I want you to see that we, we not only need a reformation of ministry, we need a reformation of God-centeredness. And that's the title of the message this morning, a reformation of God-centeredness. And this is exactly where we will direct our thoughts today. I want to begin by way of introduction by by discussing uh, the need for the need. Why must we focus on a reformation of God-centeredness? Well, A.W. Tozer said this many, many years ago. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer understood that the most crucial aspect of a person's worldview is their conception of God. When Tozer penned these important words all the way back in 1961, he was intensely concerned with the direction of the church of Jesus Christ. 
He was concerned that humanism had attached its tentacles to the church. He was concerned that liberalism was, was sneaking in the back door of the church. And so he wrote some very pointed comments. Now, it has been over 50, excuse me, 50 years since Tozer reminded the church about the importance of a God-centered view of God. Today, as many of you are aware, there are vast numbers of professing Christians who neglect the biblical portrait of God. I am convinced that large numbers of professing Christians and even evangelicals are creating a little G-O-D. Large numbers of Christians are creating a little God that fits with their desires. They're creating or, or concocting this view of God that fits with their dictates, with their desires, with their inclinations. And what they do is they end up developing a, a, a portrait of a false God. Al Martin adds with, with regret, he says, quote, One of the great problems in our day is that we have had in, in great measure lost sight of those aspects of the character of God that are calculated to produce his fear. Namely, his majesty, immensity, holiness, and unrivaled sovereignty as the reigning monarch of the universe. Close quote. Now the tendency to misrepresent God, the tendency to marginalize God, or the character of God becomes marginalized, it wreaks damage on the church of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that a false view of God also negatively influences the culture that we live in. And it does not take long, I should say, to, to find pastors and authors and theologians even who reject a view of, of God who knows all things. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort to find pastors and theologians and even missionaries who reject a view of God who controls all things. It doesn't take long to find authors who, who posit a view of God who is only love but never wrath. It doesn't take long to find a, a list of people who believe in a God of universalism where no one goes to hell and everyone goes to heaven. I believe and I hope that many of you will, will hear my heart and you will agree with this assertion that we need to return to a God-centered view of God. I don't know if you noticed, but in Kyle's prayer, which I greatly appreciated, Kyle, he, he evoked the, the famous words of the great Puritan Richard Baxter. As a dying man to dying man, I preach as if I'll never preach again. And then, Jason, I love the quote by John Newton, a, a godly man, a former slave trader, becomes a pastor, writes the most famous hymn in the history of the world, Amazing Grace. We sang that song yesterday at Bill Scales' memorial service. These are men who had God-centered views of God, and it's time that we return to the days when God is first and foremost in our minds and in our affections. The year that William Tyndale was martyred, was executed, a very important book was, was published, and I hold it in my hands this morning. It's a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Calvin agrees with this idea of a God-centered view of God. He says this, that hence we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. 
He went on to describe that the human mind as an idle factory. The human heart is an idle factory, pumping and pumping and pumping and churning and churning and churning out idols. We see it everywhere in our culture. He went on to say this. He said, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, no, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. You see, it was happening in the 16th century as it continues to happen today. I want to have you look with me at a very powerful text. It is, it is a heartwarming text. It is a mind-riveting text, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 46. I want to have you stand with me as we read beginning in verse 8. And here we will see Isaiah chapter 46 calls us to a God-centered view of God. Verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let's pray. Father, what a, a riveting text. What an amazing piece of scripture as we turn our attention to the God of the universe, may, may our hearts be filled with wonder this morning. God, I pray that you would remove thoughts that would distract us from learning more, from cherishing you more, from, from being totally enthralled with who you are in all your majesty and all your glory. I pray that you would do this matchless work of grace. I think of young people, that you would grip the hearts of young people. I think of, of adults who have walked with Jesus for many, many years. I pray that you would capture their hearts today, that you would rivet their attention on who you are and that their, their lives would be radically affected as they, they embrace this, this vision of God that is painted for us so beautifully in this passage. And then I pray for, for those who are here this morning who do not yet have a personal relationship with God. Father, I pray that they would be blown away by the portrait that they see, that they would come into contact with the living God as they hear the saving message of the gospel, as it, as it just explodes from these pages. We trust you to encourage us now in this place. It's in your son's worthy name that we pray. Amen. What this passage does for us in Isaiah chapter 46 is it paints what I'm calling a, a God-centered vision of God. And so you ask, who is this God? Well, there are three very important pillars that surface here in this passage. First, the Bible tells us about a God who confronts sin. And we live in 2017. Can you imagine that? A God who confronts the three-letter word. We worship a God who confronts sin. Look at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. 
recall it to mind, you transgressors. Think about the typical American mindset. That, that sounds kind of judgmental. Yes, it does. Here we see that God is looking out on the sea of humanity and what he looks down upon is not goodness. He looks down upon the sea of humanity and he sees transgressors. The Hebrew term here for transgressors means this, and and be careful that you never minimize sin. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a little, little peccadillo. Sin is not a minor deviation. Sin is cosmic treason against the triune and holy God of the universe. The Hebrew term here translated transgressors means this, to behave as a criminal. Now look at this verse again. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you criminals. That's what the word transgressor means. Means The Bible tells us that every person born into this world, you consider the, the beautiful newborn baby. That beautiful newborn baby is a sinner, is a transgressor, is born as a lawless one. It does not take away the fact that it's a beautiful baby. It does not take away the fact that this is a a child who's created in the Imago Dei, who's created in the image of God, but it also reminds us that every child that is born emerges from the womb as a transgressor. I want to have you turn with me to the book of Judges, if you would. Hold your finger in Isaiah and turn to the, the very end of Judges. I want to do something a little bit different this morning is I want to, to walk you through what I'm referring to as a case study. A case study of the transgressors as we look just for a moment in the book of Judges. Now the book of Judges, and this, this is going to be the, the shortest overview you've ever heard of an Old Testament book. The book of Judges describes the people who led Israel after Joshua died until the rise of the monarchy under Samuel. And a predictable pattern takes place in the book of Judges that looks something like this. And we'll put these on the screen for you uh, so you can gaze upon them. First, the people turn away from God. If you've had a chance to read the book of Judges recently, this will come as no surprise because throughout the book of Judges, the people turn away from God. They turn away from God. But once they turn away from God, it shouldn't surprise you when God punishes the people by installing a foreign power to oppress them. This is what you might refer to as divine punishment. They turn away from the living God and God says, okay, I will punish you for turning away from me. And then what do the people do? Even if you've never read Judges, you you can almost predict what's going to happen is they turn from God, God punishes them, and they say, oh God, please, will you forgive us? Please, please help us. And that's what they do. They beg for God to deliver them. And what does God do? He answers that prayer. He raises up a judge for them, and they live happily ever, not so fast. You know what happens. Then it's like this, rinse and repeat. The people turn from God, divine punishment, 
a plea for deliverance. God raises up a judge, and that's the end of the not-so-fast. Rinse and repeat. And so throughout, throughout the whole book of Judges, we see this pattern of sin and judgment and deliverance and God raising up a judge. And then what happens? Look at Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21. And before we read that, well, let me read it quickly. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And see if this sounds like a country that you're vaguely familiar with. Like the one we're living in. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like America? I think it really sounds like America. But don't be too quick to judge Israel here. I think from an American standpoint, it's easy to, to see this, this case study in the book of Judges and say, oh, man, look at how sinful Israel was. But don't be so quick because we too in our own land have forgotten God. It might surprise you that in 2015, there were 908,000 abortions that we know of in America. According to the United Nations 2013 report, only nine countries in the world have a higher reported abortion rate than the United States. They are Bulgaria, Cuba, Estonia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Romania, Russia, Sweden, and Ukraine. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, there have been an estimated 58 million plus Abortions. Actually, the number I was given was 58,586,000 abortions that we know of in America. In addition to this godless activity, public support for same-sex mirage. Are you with me? Oh, good. Public support for same-sex mirage has been growing steadily over the past decade, as you know. In 2007, only 10 years ago, Americans opposed legalizing same-sex marriage by a margin of 54% to 37%. A new Pew Research Center survey finds that by roughly 2 to 1, more Americans support 62% than oppose 32%, allowing gays and lesbians to marry legally. Do you see the downward slide? We're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the mud. In the area of knowledge and academics and what philosophers call epistemology, the study of how we know what we know. There's a famous quote that was published back in 1987 by Alan Bloom, and he says this. And by the way, if you're sending your children to college anytime soon, this should make the, the hair on your arms stand this high. Dr. Bloom says this, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Truth is relative. One writer says, in the postmodern era, nearly every person believes that moral values are relative, that is, constructed by cultures, not ordained by God. Indeed, as Judges 21 reminds us, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. 
Well, I want to move from this case study in the book of Judges and have you look at a very important matter that relates to this first point, that God confronts sin. I want you to see that it is God alone who establishes the moral parameters. It is not culture who establishes the moral parameters. It is not a civics class that establishes the moral parameters. It is not a philosophy professor. It is certainly not People magazine. It is God alone who establishes the moral parameters. Notice five things quickly. We see that God set the moral parameters in the garden. You, you, can, you can almost imagine here in your mind's eye what I'm going to say. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord, the Lord God commanded the man, Surely you may eat out of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God alone establishes the moral parameters in the garden. Move forward now in redemptive history. God also sets the moral parameters at Sinai. If you want to reference this, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, we won't take the time to read it, but you know it, most likely you know it very well, that God sets forth his law at Sinai. Third, God sets the moral parameters in 66 books. God sets the moral parameters in his word. He gives us a series of commandments. And by the way, commandments are found in the Old Testament and where else? In the New Testament. There's something that, that is becoming more popular that, that says there are no commandments in the New Testament. It's patently absurd. The Old Testament and the New Testament contain very important commandments. They also contain very important prohibitions. This is what I want you to do, God says. These are the things I command you to do. These are the things I prohibit you from doing. Number four, God sets the moral parameters in his son. He sets the moral parameters in his son. As one example in John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here in one verse, in verse 36, we see these two amazing attributes of God, namely the love of God and the wrath of God. They are not pitted against one another. They tell us this, believe in Jesus and you will go to heaven. Reject Jesus, you will go to hell. God establishes the moral parameters in his son. Finally, God sets the moral parameters for every creature. He sets the moral parameters for every boy, for every girl. God set the moral parameters for Hugh Hefner and he refused to listen. God set the moral parameters for Joseph Stalin, and he refused to listen. God set the moral parameters for Mussolini and Napoleon and Mikhail Gorbachev. And these men, they, they just refuse to listen. And so returning to the God-centeredness of God begins by recognizing and embracing the God who confronts transgressors. Returning to a a God-centered view of God involves embracing a God who confronts sin. Psalm chapter 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. 
If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has, he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That's what God does. He's a God who confronts sin. But I want to have you turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 46 and see that God is not only a a God who confronts sin, but he is a God who competes with no one. Have you ever thought about that? Is it it would be and this is a a crude illustration. It's a so please give me much grace here. It would be like if Michael Jordan in his prime, right? In my estimation, the greatest basketball player that ever lived or ever will live, most likely. And he's shooting three-pointers, right? He's shooting three-pointers. And this 12-year-old walks onto the court says, Hey, MJ, can I shoot with you? Yeah, sure, young man. He's like, I'll take you on. Are you, what? Michael Jordan has no competitors. But like I say, the, the illustration pales in comparison with the living God. The living God has no competitors. He is the God who competes with no one. I want to take just a minute and have you watch a video. A video that will vividly illustrate the the majesty and the supremacy and the beauty of this God who competes with no one.
you know what that is? Take your seatbelts and just click them. Like, at least the young people, like, amuse me. Click, right? You know what that is? That's Christ fellowship in the future. Why not? Because here's what happens. When the God who competes with no one captures your heart and rivets your mind, you explode in worship. You explode, and you don't care what your neighbor thinks. You don't care what your friends think because you're captivated with the living God, the God who competes with no one. Look at Isaiah 46, verse 9. There are three statements that are absolutely incredible. The first in verse 9, I am God. The women in women's Bible study will be experts on this by this point. I've talked to several of them. This is the word El, a shortened version of the the Hebrew term Elohim or mighty one. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Let that sink in for a minute. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, this is the name above all names. I am God. Secondly, also in verse 9, we read the words, there is no other. Now the Bible makes this abundantly clear and it's something that as we as we scan our culture especially since 9-11 we see that many people are unwilling to accept this reality that there is one god there is one god who reveals himself in three persons isaiah chapter 44 says thus says the lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? Answer, there is no rock. I know not any. Also in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. See, the the Hindu deity Vishnu And another Hindu deity, Shiva, and the the pantheon of deities in Hinduism are are lies. Can you imagine saying that? They're lies. The, the, The polytheism that we see in some of the world's most popular religion, these are all lies. Why do we know that? Why can I be so dogmatic? And why must you be so dogmatic? Because the Bible says, I am God and there is no other once again in Isaiah 45 
We read these words, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So throughout the pages of Scripture, we see it over and over and over again. I am God, there is no other. And so in verse 9, we learn about the name of all names. We see that I am God, says the Lord. There is no other, says the Lord. And also in verse 9, notice, he says, there is none like me. Moses understood that there was no one that held a candle to his God. And he he uttered these words in Exodus fifteen eleven. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now, of course, Moses was not confessing a belief in polytheism, but he was in a culture that believed that there were other gods, many gods. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, in glorious deeds, in doing wonders? Question mark. And he, he leaves the reader hanging. And the answer is... Crickets. I'm going to read this one more time. And someone be really bold and work with me. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? Question mark. No one. There's no one like the living God. No one comes close. No one can compare to God. And so we learn here that We believe in and we worship a God who competes with no one. Finally, in verse 10, we not only love and worship a God who confronts sin and who competes with no one, but we see that God is a God who controls all things. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. That's pretty comprehensive. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. You should realize that the things you read and the people you talk to, they influence you. Because I have, and I'll have Nathan flip the slide here. I I have subtitled this slide, Unrivaled Sovereignty. And believe it or not, it wasn't until this morning during the worship set, when the worship team was leading us, I thought to myself, did I subtitle that part, Unrivaled Sovereignty? And I went back, and indeed I had, and I wondered, where did I get that phrase? Well, it was the quote from Al Martin earlier in the sermon. You see, the things you read, the people you are influenced by, influence your views. They influence your behavior. But this is, first and foremost... From the pages of sacred scripture that our God is a God of unrivaled sovereignty. I want you to see two very important things here. First, God orchestrates every detail of redemptive history. God orchestrates every detail of redemptive history. And I realize that we are in a congregation where... Some of us are all over the map. Some of you say, I I have a strong belief in the sovereignty of God. And others of you over here and you say, well, I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with that. I'm trying to figure out where it all fits in. I can tell you that in my Christian journey, in my Christian journey, it wasn't until my college days. This grabbed my mind 
in my heart where I realized I should have known it years prior. My uncle was the pastor of the church I attended. And I'm sure he preached about it, but I never got it. It took until I was about 22 years old to realize that God Almighty orchestrates every detail in, in all of redemptive history. There, there is not one detail that escapes the sovereign plan of Almighty God. And then I run across, I run across a quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And it is, of all the things Spurgeon has said, one of my all-time favorite things, and I've, I have probably quoted this before from this pulpit, and you'll probably hear it again. Mr. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the star in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a popular tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Close quote. And you say, wow. I think Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a a very robust view of the sovereignty of God. You see, there is not one speck of dust that God is not sovereignly overseeing and in control of. But there's something else I want you to see that is an outflow of this first point, and that is that God ordains everything that comes to pass. God ordains everything that comes to pass. One of the last great Princeton theologians said this. Charles Hodge said, The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And I remember early on in my Christian journey really struggling with with theologians and pastors who believe that, that God had sovereignly ordained everything that came to pass. And then the thought grabbed me. If God doesn't sovereignly ordain whatsoever comes to pass, whew, I'm in big trouble. And you're in big trouble. That means the universe could possibly, could conceivably spin out of control, and nothing could be further from the truth. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You cannot read that verse without having a a huge smile on your face. That God ordains everything that comes to pass. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, an ungodly pagan man. And he certainly didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, and he certainly wasn't worshiping God. And so what did God do? He sent him out to pasture. It, it's an it's a absolutely stunning portrait in Scripture in the book of Daniel. And we read that his, his hair grew long like Tom Hanks in Castaway. You have the image? Nasty, right? His fingernails grew long. He was, he was filthy, and he was cursing God. And then one day, he comes to this point. 
And the Bible says that the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the first person speaking. He lifted my eyes to heaven, he says, and my reason returned to him. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so Nebuchadnezzar goes from this this pagan ruler to a man with outstretched arms, worshiping God and acknowledging that he ordains everything that comes to pass. Now you think about the stories from Genesis to Revelation. And my my sense is, my suspicion is, that if you could pick one character, one character in Scripture who, who could try to build a case that God was being unfair, or that God had given him a raw deal, or that God had somehow ripped him off, if there is anyone who could ever consider the idea of complaining about God's plan, how many of you would say his name had three letters? Yeah, you got it. His name would be Job. This man lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his money. He lost his real estate. Oh, he did not lose one thing. A sniveling wife who told him, curse God and die. Yet at the end of the story in chapter 42, Job confesses this to God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See, my friends, we we need to return to the God-centeredness of God. Simply put, our view of God must be reformed. Tozer said what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But he continues, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. This is what Tozer believed. As you lower your view of God, your worship standards are getting lower and lower and lower. He said the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. And so what does it look like by way of application? How is it that we as followers of Jesus Christ can reform our view of God? What does it mean to return to the God-centeredness of God? Number one, we must recover our vision of God's greatness. The Lord is great in Zion, the psalmist said. He is exalted over all the people's. Psalm 135 says, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. And so we must recover our vision of the greatness of God. Secondly, we must recover our thirst for God's holiness. It was many years ago I read these words from R.C. Sproul who said that God does not lower his standards to accommodate us. That one's worth writing on the inside pages of your Bible. God does not lower his standards to accommodate us. 
Psalm 99.5, the psalmist says, Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. There's a man, there's a writer who is, has recovered his thirst for the holiness of God. Number three, if we are to reform our view of God, if we are to have a, a God-centered view of God, we must recover our passion for God's glory. Isaiah 48 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? He says, My glory I will not give to another. Number four, and finally, if we are to have a God-centered view of God, we must recover a holy fear of God. Calvin said we should restrain ourselves from sinning, not out of dread of punishment alone, but because we love and revere God as Father and worship and adore Him as Lord I want to read one more sentence that I'll, I'll never forget the day I read the sentence. And I've read it several times since, and, and it, it should shiver you to the, to the very bone. Calvin said, even if there were no hell, it would still shudder at offending God alone. What does a reformation of God's centeredness look like for you and me? Pastor Alistair Begg helps clear the pathway for us. Let me read these words. He says, one day the shadows will flee away. The days of preparation will all come to an end. The final day will dawn. Already we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but then we will know him as we have never done before in face-to-face fellowship. Then we will be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. He goes on to say that we shall see Jesus as the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head as the prophet of God, whose word directs our lives as the great high priest who intercedes for us as the king who subdues all our enemies and reigns over us forever. We shall recognize him as the son of man seated beside the ancient of days and as the suffering servant who is now exalted as the lamb on the throne on that day. We will see with unclouded vision why his father has given him the name above all names. But until that moment comes, and indeed it will, we see through a glass darkly, do we not? And we recognize the need for a God-centered view of God. I'm convicted about this. I'm convicted by the reality that when God is the chief object of our affections, all our pettiness goes away. When all of, when God captures our affections, our pettiness disappears. When God is the chief object of our affections, all of our complaining goes away. When God is the chief object of our affections, we turn our focus from ourselves and from our circumstances vertical. We turn our affections to him. When God is the chief object of our affections, our worship deepens. Our fellowship grows more intimate and sweet. And our ministry to one another and also in the community is laced with the almighty power of God. And so we worship a God who confronts sin. We worship a God who competes with no one. And we worship a God who controls every speck of dust in the universe for his glory. I hope you agree with me this morning. 
that it is, it is high time to return to the God-centeredness of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, these very short verses that paint this, this portrait that is first and foremost true concerning you and your character and your attributes, but also they, they fill our, our hearts with wonder. These truths rivet our, our minds. They cause us to stand at attention. They cause us to, to be on bended knee. They cause us to be filled with humility. They cause us to be filled with, with remorse because we have sinned. We've fallen short of your glory. But I, I thank you that in eternity past, you ordained that Jesus would come to be the final substitute for our sin. That he lived a life that we could never live. And he died a death that I deserve to die. And each person in this room deserves to die. And then on the third day, you raised him from the grave. And that now he's seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning. We thank you for the great control you have over the universe, over the events of our lives. We thank you that, that nothing escapes your attention. And so, God, I pray, I pray for this church family that we would more and more return to a God-centered view of God, that our view of God would be in keeping with the Scripture, that we would remember that, our, our opinions lining up against the word of God, our opinions don't matter, that the word of God matters. And so would you uh, conform our hearts and our minds and our conscience, everything we think about you, may it come directly from your word. May we, may we embrace it. May it fill us with wonder. And may you do mighty things in the days ahead. God, I think about the Chris Tomlin video where, Hundreds upon hundreds of people are, are captured, not by the music, but by the majesty of the living God. Thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ. May it affect our hearts. May it affect our hands. May it affect our feet. May we make a difference in this community because we return to the God-centeredness of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For our benediction, benediction this morning, first I want to remind you that there will be some men uh, collecting an offering at the end of the service to help with our benevolence fund. And uh, just a, a short reminder, there have been some recent stories where we've been able to be a blessing to people both in our church family and in our community because of this benevolence fund. So thank you for your faithful giving. I also want to have you mark your calendars for next Sunday evening. Uh, at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a, a special soup dinner, be a light dinner. And then at 6 o'clock, we'll be here uh, in the worship center for our monthly Quorum Deo. If you have not heard, uh, Quorum Deo is a little Latin phrase that became popular during the days of the Reformation. It simply means before the face of God. Well, this month's Quorum Deo will be uh, extra special because we will have the chance to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We only get one shot. Thank you. It'll be another 500 years before the celebration happens again. And so, but let me make it real clear. I've talked to a few people. When we celebrate the Reformation, we are not celebrating a man. 
most notably Martin Luther or any of the other reformers. We are celebrating the gospel. That's what we celebrate. And so Jason and the worship team will have a, a, an incredible set of music where we will uh, sing together and worship together and pray together and just delight in the gospel that was rediscovered by some very important people in the 16th century. And I, I trust that it will be encouraging for you. Let me close with one scripture in Jeremiah chapter 10. It says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great. In your name is great in might. Let's pray together. Now, Father, I pray that you would uh, encourage your people. Uh, may we uh, constantly uh, be turning our attention back to the word of God that remind us who you are. Uh, we confess that you are a good God. You are a great God. That you are holy. That you are merciful. That you are just. Uh, that you are a God of love. That you are a God of compassion. You are there for the widow. You are there for the brokenhearted. You are there for the lonely. And you also delight when we are uh, filled with, with uh, overflowing joy because of what has been accomplished for us in the beauty of the gospel. And so, Father, may, may your peace and, 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 and joy rest on the hearts of your people today. May the rest of this day be uh, a wonderful time to fellowship together and delight in your good creation. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're sent.